global controls will have to be imposed, and a world governing body will be created to enforce them. Crises precipitate change. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 108 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we are very pleased to be joined by returning guest Danielle Carr, who is an anthropologist and historian of science, finishing her PhD at Columbia, uh, doing just really, really interesting work um, in her dissertation on you know, things we talked about in our in our previous episode with Danielle, which I highly recommend you check out around like brain implants, uh, neurotechnology, and the history and science and politics of all that. But our excuse for having Danielle back on the pod, as if we need one, uh, is to chat about a very excellent new essay she has in The Nation, looking at like the, the pop sci uh, style uh, of writing, uh, and, and the politics of it, as represented by one of the genre's golden boys, uh, Carl Zimmer, who's a very, very well-known, he's a New York Times columnist, very well-known science writer, science popularizer. Danielle wrote a, a really great review essay called A Virus Without a World um, about Zimmer's new book uh, on called A Planet of Viruses. And, you know, when, when we read this piece, we knew we needed to get... Danielle back on the pod to talk about it. So thank you for being here, Danielle. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be back. You're, you've become TMK's science correspondent now. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm giving you this title right now because, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot, I mean, too much <laughs> about the political economy of technology. But uh, something we don't talk a lot about is is science and 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 in particular the kind of political epistemology of science, like science as this method, science as an ideology, science as an institution in society. I, I think like bringing this this kind of epistemological and political epistemology viewpoint to science is really interesting and contrast really nicely with the, the like the pop tech kind of gadget reviews and the ways that we understand uh, technology through the media. Like the way that science is cast in the media is oftentimes in a very different way and, and not so captured by the same kind of like political economy of interest um, that we expect with technology. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's now like even in sort of like centrist mainstream uh, publications, you know, everyone hates Amazon, right? That's not like breaking, you know, new ground to say that, although like not, you know, obviously not everybody is taking like the hard left perspective that you guys have um, on here. But I think that 
there's been this kind of, um, on the left, there's been a kind of like seeding of seeding of ground maybe, or like re- to, to the idea of, of science is like neutrality, right? Because like the science does in some sense seem to be on our side here, right? Like you have, um, the idea of like climate change or like COVID, you know, there's, I think there's been a sort of reticence to open back up a, um, a critique of science, but like the stuff that's happening with the political economy of technology is also happening with the political economy of science. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but there are, you know, major changes in the way that science is being done currently and degradations in the sort of epistemic process that have major implications for, um, what, what sort of science is getting done. So for instance, the, the labor process in science, um, is heavily reliant now on rapid turnover in underpaid research assistants who, um, they're all like 22, right. And they're working in these massive, um, basically science factories that are operated out of academic research centers and they can't unionize because they're all taking these frankly shitty jobs because they want to get into grad school. And this has implications for like the fact that science is really not hypothesis driven right now. There's a lot of, um, stuff happening where you will produce a lot of data and then sort of pull out correlations afterwards and like cobble together hypothesis after that, um, or on the basis of that. And so I do think it's important for us to start opening up the sort of political, a political economy of science and, and having that kind of critique. Uh, but yeah, when it comes to to the essay, um, I was happy to to have the opportunity to write this, not just because Carl Zimmer drives me insane, but it's not just about Carl Zimmer, as you say. Like, I think he's he also seems to be a very nice man, right? Um, but it's his style of kind of um, like you know. But it, I, it could have been Oliver Sacks. It could have been any of these kind of um, erudite, charming, like very well spoken and not particularly like bright um white guys who are writing about science now could we me as someone who didn't really come across carl zimmer until you wrote about him in your piece could we also talk about what role he has in science popular popularizing and like how he might compare to more well-known or differ from more well-known modern science popularizers because i think that that was also a really interesting piece of the piece i had no idea he was like the most prominent and reading his stuff i get a sense of like okay this is this makes sense why yeah i mean he i would say i would say he's like the the nation's premier science writer right now and his um his line is that science is bipartisan right science is is beyond politics and you can kind of see why he's going for that um because he's from this kind of clintonite moment that is being pulled apart now by the new political configuration of um you know the the reascendant kind of like Trumpist or like Trump derived like right but but his line is very much that science is beyond politics and whatever else is happening in the political sphere well that shouldn't touch science because science is like beyond contestation um but yeah he he began his career I mean he got a, a he got a bachelor's in English at Yale he started working at Discover Magazine which was a new magazine um that was started in the 80s to sort of address widespread public hunger for popular writing about science. You know, I think, I think Discover has been very well described as by, uh, by its own people as like science writing for people, for middle managers. Right. So it's this sort of like very middle-class publication that's for people who want to just know, you know, just know a little bit about like what's, what's some interesting stuff that's happening in science so they can stay well-rounded. 
Um, and that's very much kind of, I think, the defining feature of his style. Um, so he's gone on. I mean, his big break was his evolution book, which was, as I say in the piece, published kind of at the height of the Bush two culture wars over evolution. Um, and his line in that book very much was like, well, you know, uh, this is not really a political question. It's like the science is in and and uh, evolution is real. And the fact that people don't want to accept that is just like, well, they're just stupid, right? Um, yeah, he's had a very successful career kind of peddling, you know, very interesting, uh, I, but very like, it's a very descriptive mode of science um, to to people who are invested in this this kind of idea that like well science is real and if you don't believe in it you must be stupid and probably from the, the, you know probably a hit. Yeah, there there is definitely uh, just going off of that like that last point there. There absolutely is this kind of like classist element to it as well, right? That like believing in science is a necessary condition towards being a like modern, civilized, cosmopolitan citizen of contemporary civilization. Like, it, it's all very much uh, cast in, in these large kind of grandiose moments, um, which really work to make science into something that is apolitical, ahistorical, atemporal. Like, it, it's, it's a universal constant. It's always been there, and now it's up to us to, you know, do we trust in it or do we not trust in it, right? It very much kind of toes these lines of like, you know, <laughs> it's very Ben Shapiro-esque in a way where it's like facts don't care about your feelings. Like Exactly. <laughs> like that is like Zimmer would believe that. Zimmer would say that. He would say that like scientific facts don't care about your feelings. Uh, scientific facts don't care if you believe in them or not because they are true like regardless of of your belief they are true um outside of any kind of like human or social uh perception of them they they are universal in that way like that is very much the view of science through this like zimmer-esque uh mode of thinking yeah i think that's exactly right and i mean i think it's so smart to point out the homologies between um, this kind of like, you know, it's like, it is basically Ben Shapiro, like facts don't care about your feelings, like, but a little bit more polite. Um, and I think that it's a big mistake. Um, you know, the people, you know, even on our neck of the political woods tend to fall into, which is like, oh, well, you know, the problem, um, the problem is that they're simply not educated. I mean, one of my, one of my lines in the piece is like, the idea that, you know, people would stop believing in COVID conspiracy theories if only they knew that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, right? Like, this is like <laughs> the idea, right? It's like, just like, if only they had paid better attention in biology class, like, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we wouldn't be having those problems, which I think there's so much more to the public distrust of science that's happening right now than just like these people are idiots, right? Most of the time people are not idiots and they very much understand um, the basic facts structure in their lives. Um, And, you know, what's happening with COVID conspiracy theories is I think is in some ways like uh, encoded like critique of the politics of science and a, and a critique of the idea that science is completely neutral, right? Because everyone knows that vaccine uh, manufacturers are making extortionate amounts of money from this, right? Like, and, and it doesn't, it does us no, 
service to think, oh, well, we just need to tell these people how a virus works um, and think that that's going to solve the problem. I think that's also something I've been frustrated with in coverage and talking about why people distrust vaccine, you know, like, for example, you know, the vaccines work, but the companies that rolled them out, I mean, you couldn't have chosen companies. I sh- you have a reason to trust last, you know, Johnson Johnson. I had friends who, I mean, they got the vaccines, but I remember talking with them and them and them being like, isn't it kind of wild that like, I, in fact, I had a friend who was working on a case or or new or new people that were also working on another case where Johnson and Johnson was dealing with like, oh, we made a product for people. It was the baby powder case. We made this for people mm. that we also forgot to mention as a, a little poison in it. And so, and so like, I'm, you know, they had to do a huge settlement. I can understand why people following that or people who follow like Pfizer and Moderna, like bribing governments in other countries would be like, I don't know. But that also, I think is interesting how when we talk about science is beyond politics, we also ignore the role of like the actual actors who come into the space and who are like, they're not, they're not neutral arbiters of science. They're producing something that then is supposed to be like made neutral once it's, once it's scientific, right? Yeah. I mean, not to go down too much of a rabbit hole here and let me just hedge this like, you should get the vaccine. Yeah, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Okay. With that being said. I've got three I, shots. <laughs> to be honest. i got three shots. Almost as many four. as they'll give me. Um, I'm only taking the Cuban vaccine. That's the only science I trust in. <laughs> I want to get the Sputnik so bad just because I think it would be so chic. But um, but no, I mean, I think like really left out of like, the, for instance, the vaccine con- controversy is like the fact that First of all, the anti-vaxxer movement for COVID, or at least vaccine skepticism, was not the same for like the anti-vax movement for childhood vaccines, which is mostly like white goop moms in Berkeley or other like, you know, upper middle class areas like that, being like, well, I just don't know if it's right for my child, right? And it's like this very boutique approach to to parenting. Whereas like the, the mistrust of the vaccine was like really located the COVID vaccine was really located in like you know, communities of color that had every instant or, you know, very good reason to, to distrust the sort of experimental nature of the vaccine, because they, these are the populations that have been screwed over by experimental science, like historically in the United States. So I don't know if you guys remember the controversy of or surrounding like satanic panic in the eighties. Another thing that kind of got wrapped up in that is like, someone saw a logo for like Procter and Gamble and thought that it was like satanic because they were able to draw out like three sixes on it. Oh yeah. And it has a wizard on it and it looks like Satan. And of course, you know, Johnson and Johnson, I don't know if they're, they're part of Procter and Gamble, but the whole like reluctancy with some of the pharmaceutical companies that also comes from like the religious, like fear that people, people that, you know, tend to be a lot less educated also tend to be very religious and they place a lot of their faith in their religion to give them the answers they want. And so the, some of the, I feel like some of the, uh, the vaccine reluctancy also comes from like the experimenting on children to get this is this is what this is coming from. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a blow some minds here that science is also a religion, <laughs> you know I mean? But like, I don't, I don't know if we hear as much anymore. Like, I don't think the like, anti-covid vax stuff was really cast in these like uh like religious you know religion versus science uh wars that like that used to be something we heard a lot about and that was definitely something that like yeah people like zimmer you know you just threw richard dawkins in the chat jeremy people like dawkins right like these big uh 
uh, what like the like the four horsemen of of uh, of atheism, of atheism. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, like Hitchens, uh, Harris, like you know, Daniel uh, Sam Harris, Daniel, like all of these, like all of this was very much cast on this, like you know, there's a battlefield out there, right, for the for the the soul and the mind of the nation, and it's like church versus science, uh, religion versus, uh, you know, uh, Baconian methods or whatever. One of the things that you go really, uh, that you really nail in the piece, Danielle, is like you start off the piece right away by saying, you know, quote, all societies have a genre of narrative known as the just-so story, which exists to furnish a question about the world. The point of a just-so story is to explain not only why things are the way they are, but also why they couldn't be any other way. Floating somewhere outside of history, with all its contingencies and struggles for power, the just-so story sparkles with the structure of myth. And I like this analogy that you draw throughout the piece of, you know, yes, these just so stories. And if you're familiar with like evolutionary psychology, right, which is like the the queen of all just so sciences, but they only heighten a tendency that is present throughout all of this kind of way that we socially approach science as an institution and as an epistemology, right, in the terms of as a, as a, as a, uh, a method and study of knowledge and the uh, the discovery and acceptance of knowledge, but there there is very much this kind of mythos, mythological aspect to uh, to these just so stories that people like Zimmer are really adept at outlining and uh, and and pitching to people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right, and I think that one of the things that I well, I'd like to clarify, like what I what I am not trying to argue in this piece, because I think that there's there's maybe some fine distinctions here that need to be drawn. I am not saying that well, you can have science writing and that's great, but it needs to be in the context of political and social factors, right? Um, because that is itself just another form of the just so story, right? Where like, well, you have like society and politics on the one side, but then you have like real facts about nature on the other, right? What I'm saying is that these these things are constitutively intertwined, right? And like the way that we make science is itself totally imbricated with and, and caught up with social and political factors. Science is an expression of those social and political factors. And that's not to say that there's no such thing as scientific fact, but like what goes into the construction of those facts and what sort of facts we're interested in, in that science is interested in, in finding out about. Like it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a false distinction to say, uh, to say, oh, it needs to be in the context of like the context is already there. It's it, the question is whether or not we're, mm. we're talking about that. And, and, and I'd just like to say my other, my other point is not to say that like popular science writing is bad. Right. But just to say, like, what sort of what sort of popular science writing do we need? And like, by the way, what sort of popular science writing should be funded? Like this this book, the Zimmer's book was funded with NIH, National Institutes of Health funding. Right. And when it comes to what sort of what's going to be useful or like, sorry to say, edifying for the public to to read about, like, sure, it's interesting to find out, like, you know, like, how does a mitochondria work? But like when it comes to like the sort of lessons or the sort of information that's going to be useful to people trying to solve the problem of like how the public relates with science, it's going to be, you know, much more edifying to the citizenry of, of a democracy to understand the construction of science and, 
and its ramifications um, for social and political factors. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of hedging that all of us are going to have to do in this in this episode, right? Because like you know, we've laid this found this this groundwork, um, and there's a, a kind of burgeoning foundation in in the in broader public perception around things like technology, right? I mean, this is very much the same kind of hedging that like you know we had to do for a very long time when critiquing technology uh, is to be like it, it, it's not that like you know. Uh, I, I want to go live back in a. I want to go live in a in a mountaintop, you know, co- cottage all alone. I want that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I don't want to do that, but <laughs> so, <laughs> or or that I want to or you know, it's all this stuff around like when we talk about like Luddism, right? Uh, that like uh, equates it with a kind of primitivism uh, as a as a, a wanting to go back to some prehistorical time period way of living um, conceived of as like all of us are living in a cave, like huddled around fire, blah, blah, blah. Like, but I think that uh, while there has been a growing reckoning um, about the power of technology um, and technology uh, and, and, you know, the, the political economy of technology, I don't think that that same reckoning is at the same place with science. And so, like, we have to do all of this hedging to be like, yes, go get your vaccine, right? Like, I've got my Pfizer jabs. Like, you should go get your jabs, right? You know, we're, we're not anti all science blah 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 but at the same time like these are uh this this is a very powerful and authoritative um way like institution in society and an ideology in society that like all powerful institutions and ideologies has to be cracked open and it has to be examined with a critical eye um and and i think that like i think people like zimmer would say like what you're trying to do is you're trying to politicize science, right? You are trying to politicize something that is fundamentally um, not just apolitical, but anti-political. Um, and it goes back to your 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 point or just a minute ago, Danielle, where you're like, you're not saying that all science writing has to place it in the context of these social and political factors. But what you are saying and what I'm, I'm saying as well is that it is actually a choice to not do that, right? It's, it's, a, it's not saying all science writing has to do that, but by not doing it, you have to at least recognize that a choice has been made um, to, to ignore certain factors which are uh, obviously important and obviously play a, a, a role in the development and implementation and understanding of something like science. Um, and to, to act otherwise, to just completely ignore those factors is fundamentally uh, a choice that has been made. And, and you lay out really well uh, the ways in which Zimmer and his book has made those choices without admitting or maybe even acknowledging to himself that he has made those choices. Yeah, and I think like well, so much to say about this, but I think that one of the one of the big points that I'd like to make is is that those choices have ramifications for especially when it comes to something like pandemics, right? Because a pandemic is is I mean, you could hardly ask for a better example 
of of um, a scientific object of inquiry that is like constitutively social, right? It has everything to do with uh, how diseases come uh, come about through new proximities between uh, human society and nature, and how those those diseases are transmitted through like social formations, right? And so especially when it comes to something like pandemics, you know, like even your most like standard issue, like epidemiologists, like your most centrist epidemiologists are going to say, yeah, this thing is like constitutively social. And so when we talk about what causes a pandemic as just from the scale of here's how a microbe works, it's not just that like, oh, like, you know, as leftists, we're mad about that because we're not talking about scientific funding or something like that. It's that you're not going to be able to prevent pandemics if you're just talking about things at the level, at the scale of what you can see through a microscope. I mean, even by his own account, like given the conceptual tools that he brings to bear on the analysis, uh, and I say this in the piece, but he's like, well, you know, there will probably be, you know, another great pandemic that comes, that comes through, unfortunately, but we can all take steps to prevent that, such as washing our hands. It's like, okay, like that's your that's the big takeaway here bro like <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it is a it does always kind of re- rebound to these like individualistic measures as well when people don't want to talk about you know so like you give the example in the piece of hiv and hiv research which i think is a very instructive example of one what zimmer chooses not to uh, acknowledge, chooses not to focus on, um, or even mention. And two, like the, the, the very obvious political and economic motivations and ramifications of something like HIV. You, you, you say in, the, uh, in your piece, you know, to take, quote, to take just one example, we learn how pathologists figured out that HIV comes from a primate virus, but not that the reason that thousands of gay people died in the AIDS epidemic was that the Reagan Reagan administration blocked federal funding for HIV research. To be clear, I don't mean that the fact of the research embargo is not explored. I mean that it is not mentioned at all, right? And like, can you, can you walk us through that example a little bit? Yeah, totally. And I think it's a really good example, right? So so Zimmer does discuss like how the virus works, which is interesting. You know, like it's a just a nice little factoid, right? Um and he does discuss like how um you know how how that discovery was made. But I mean, as I say in the piece, like to bastardize Jenny Holzer, like abuse of the passive voice comes as no surprise, right? Uh, because um, in his account of the epidemic, um, he says, well, you know, um, somehow the virus was just allowed to spread uh, rampantly. And the fact is um, that the Reagan administration, uh, so so there were scientists who, who started to notice these syndromes um, that were popping up in New York City in um, gay male or populations of men who have sex with other men. And started to think, oh, there, there might be a connection here. And research was specifically blocked at the federal level. Uh, there was a ton of activism about this. Sarah Schulman actually has a new book about this that's um, really great about the sort of history of ACT UP. Um, but the Reagan administration basically welcomed this pandemic, right, as being a sort of divine punishment for, like, immoral behavior. And, and this was, like, at a moment when, 
you know, the neoliberal restructuring of the economy depended on the nuclear family in a way that uh, Melinda Cooper outlines wonderfully in her book, Family Values, which you should all read. So, so, so the construction of the pandemic was like, was like fundamentally social, like fundamentally had everything to do with like extremely like actual, like even like, not even like what leftists mean by politics, like what centrists mean by politics, like stuff that Mm -hmm. happens in Congress, right, (laughs) was like critically bound up in why thousands of people were, were dying and like how, how the virus was, was transmitted. And so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not even just like from a leftist perspective, like, oh, you guys should be like talking about politics here. It's like, even from a centrist perspective, you're not going to have a robust account of how this happened unless you include these factors. I think that idea alone seems like very blasphemous, right? This idea that like something like a uh, uh, the the actions of a virus is socially constructed, right? That like you, the pandemic was socially constructed. No, the pandemic is uh, just viruses doing what viruses do, right? They invade cells and they reprogram them and blah blah blah, right? But it's like. If there's anything that we've learned from COVID is that something like a pandemic is uh, an, an in- intensely socially constructed phenomenon, right? And it's a phenomenon that comes from, you know, as uh, so much great work has uh, on this, I'm thinking of, you know, and you, and you mentioned uh, Mike Davis's book on H5N1, um, the avian flu, right? He talks about how like, you know, and, and, and Mike Davis has been going on about this during COVID as well, that things like, you know, these viruses and these pandemics and these various flu epidemics um, always start from a certain set of social and economic conditions, right? Uh, you, you have a quote here uh, from Mike Davis where he says, you know, starting in 2005, a strain of bird flu called H5N1 began to sicken hundreds of people in Southeast Asia. Um, but as Mike Davis has shown, right, the uh, to sicken people in Southeast Asia because of a series of human-induced environmental shocks, right, the new proximity between wildlife and humans, the cause, you know, caused by wetland defense deforestation, um, you know, urbanization, the growth of mega slums, like all of these factors go into the so- social construction of a, of a virus, of a pandemic. Um, but I, I think this also gets to something you point out really well, which the you know, the, the raise the heckles of the, the, you know, the old science and technology studies scholar inside me. Um, you know, I, I did my PhD in STS and then largely left behind that discipline immediately after getting my diploma. Um, but like, you know, something that, uh, Zimmer does really well, which is this, you know, the, the, uh, this passive voice, right? Who does he give agency to in his description of, uh, of viruses of, uh, and, and, and for some reason it's almost never humans that he gives agency to, right? The actors are always these microbes. They're always these viruses. Or as you talk about, you know, when he does mention something like the fact that, as you say, although nearly all of his book involves parts of the world that have been exposed to viral transmission via their violent colonization by the global capitalist system, it takes 83 pages to find the first of a grand total of three name checks of colonialism. But his description of colonialism... 
so passive, right? He talks about it as you, as you write, right? He treats colonialism as nothing more than human groups moving from one place to another, similar in kind to Homo sapiens migration from Eurasia into the Americas, right? Like the, uh, the virus hogs all the active grammar, um, as you write in, 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 in these descriptions. And I think that, I mean, that is also an intensely political choice to say who is the active, who's the subject? Who is the active participant uh, in just the grammar or style of writing here? And yeah. weird, it's not people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm happy to have the chance to talk about that a little bit because um, real STS heads will know that this piece is basically a lobotomized version of um, Schaefer's review of uh, Latour. That was Bruno Latour that was published in the, I want to say, the the nineties. I fact check me on that, but it was called, um, the 18th Brumaire of Bruno Latour. And it's, it, I really recommend that people read it. It's an absolute banger, but the point that Shapin makes about Latour's, um, actor network theory, which by the way, argues for something that looks a lot like what I'm saying, right? Latour is arguing that, well, we need to understand nature, um, and, and society or like uh, nature and culture is being constitutively linked. And so you, if you're going to tell stories about like how scientific facts are constructed, you need to take account of non-human actors as well. And Latour's argument is that is basically the inverse of what I'm saying. And Latour says we need to understand things like um, particles in the atmosphere or shellfish that are being harvested as being agentic. <laughs> No comment on that, but I will say that Shapin's <laughs> critique is that this is hylozoic, which means which means that basically it's um, casting nature as having this kind of magical agency, right? And Shapin's critique is that um, by acting as if nature has this hylozoic capacity, even that, that dead matter has this hylozoic capacity, um, we're actually like precluding the role of specifically human agency and specifically human politics. That's, that's basically what I'm ripping off for this essay. And, and it does have ramifications for like, you know, I think that like the, I mean, his account of colonialism is like, is, is the perfect example of what um, scholar Nick Estes calls the virgin soil hypothesis um, theory of the population level wipeout of, of uh, native populations in the U S through their exposure to, to uh, viruses that that there's you know they they were not immune to through violent colonization right and so when we talk about about um, the way that these populations were violently killed um, just as if oh well just like unfortunately like the settlers like unwittingly transmitted a virus and like you know it's kind of like well what are you going to do right there's this sort of inevitability. Um, that's attributed to what was like a highly contingent and extremely violent, extremely political development. I, I, I am, uh, I regret to have to quickly fact check you here, uh, Danielle, because facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> um, but, oh, no. No, it was, uh, it was, uh, Schaefer, not Shapin, who wrote, <laughs> oh no! Easy mistake. So uh, Simon Schaefer and Steve uh, Stephen Shapin wrote. Um, they're they're uh, social scientists and historians of science who wrote a very 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 well known book called the Le Leviathan and the Air Pump uh, in the eighties. And so it's very easy to get these two. <laughs> 
Schaefer and Schaefer uh, mixed can you up. Just, like, can you just like very obviously like edit it so that every, so that every time I say one, it just it sounds like the other one. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> but but no, exactly. I mean, the, the, you don't mention Latour in your piece, and why would you uh, mention Latour in the Nation? But yeah, Realheads knew that this was all of that. This that what Zimmer is doing is I, I like the way you put it as a, a lobotomized version of of Latour. <laughs> Um, and, and it is. I mean, it very much is that, you know, very famously, Latorian politics is, a, is an anti-politics. It's, a, it's a, a, that kind of Latorian methodology of understanding actor networks um, is one that, that uh, very studiously avoids anything that reeks of politics. Um, and there is actually a, a really good essay by uh, a writer, R.H. Lawson, um, in the magazine Salvage um, that lays out in really uh, intense and delightful detail uh, the, the kind of neoliberal politics of Latour and his very large and very influential um, body of thought. This definitely raised uh, that with me. And, and I think you just laid it out really well, this idea that like it's not just a side effect of Zimmer's writing style or of this like pop size genre that Zimmer embodies that uh, it's it's things like viruses that hog all the active grammar. It's things that virus, it's things like viruses that do the killing, not decisions by people um, or larger kind of social historical movements, right? Uh, this is not merely a side effect of the style, but it's like a fundamental tenant of this way of understanding what science is and the kind of anti-political epistemology of science. Right, and I think that, like, the thing is, you can almost kind of reconstruct his reasoning by reverse engineering it, which is that, well, people distrust science, and in this fractious political moment we're living in where people can't reach across the aisle, right, the one thing that it's really important that people agree on is science. And so if the problem is that people don't understand how science works and that's why um, they're doing things like not getting the vaccine, then it's important that um, we tell stories about science in a way that is completely devoid of anything that looks like political contestation. And that way, uh, you know, we can all at least agree on that. And I think it's like a fundamental just misdiagnosis of like why people mistrust experts and why people, you know, are reticent to believe in, quote unquote, like scientific objectivity. Yeah, it's you 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 talk about how like the style uh of of like pop sci, right? And and I think this goes beyond uh some of the like thought leader big idea bozos that we've talked about on TMK like Malcolm Gladwell, for example, right? Like like it's it's a very similar style and approach to writing where the idea is just to tell stories, to tell really interesting anecdotes and wrap up in those like this kind of uh what, what you aptly describe as uh, something like reading a stack of trivial pursuit questions, right? <laughs> Where it's just like this series of like Jeopardy style uh, trivia, um, all these little factoids. And, you know, Zimmer talks about how like uh, his main goal here is just to inculcate wonder 
right? To make us like be like, isn't nature um, and and again, kind of conflating this like science and nature, right? But like, isn't nature this uh, amazing enchanted realm um, where like if you understand it, you can understand the magic of it, right? But it's not magic, right? Because because we have methods to understand it. Um, but I think Zimmer goes even beyond people like Gladwell, who I think you know Gladwell is like quite obviously a grifter. Uh, his whole life is just like he hasn't. Found found a grift um, that he hasn't like gotten on board with. Uh, but Zimmer uh, appears more as an ideologue, right? Like, like he's not just grifting, like he really believes this, right? Like he wants to be the, the, the uh, part of the kind of high priesthood um, of science. Well, I mean, I will say again, like Zimmer personally, like he seems like a very nice man. You know, I have no like gripes with him personally. Malcolm Gladwell, I just think, just like looks like the <laughs> world's most slappable War- Warby Parker model, right? But like, um, <laughs> so, like but um, I think that I think that Zimmer very much considers himself like not an ideologue, right? Which is like perhaps the biggest mark of an ideologue. But yeah, I mean, I think just to just to zoom out for a second. Why should the federal government fund writing about science? Well, this, I mean, the the sort of reason that that people like Zimmer are parasitizing on or like attaching themselves to is that is the problem of science and democracy, right? So as you had rapid scientific advance, um, especially following um, the increase of federal funding for science that marked um the uh, marked World War II, which, by the way, was a period when science in the United States went from being funded primarily by private um, foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation that used the enormous profits of um, a steel monopoly to gain hegemony over science. That that hegemony over, over funding of science transferred to the federal government um, be- following the enormous investment in science uh, that that marked World War II. And you, so you have this rapid advance in, in science and scientific, and scientific technology. And the problem then becomes how can citizens govern a science that they don't understand? And this was like particularly a big question after the revelation of uh, the atomic bomb, which was, you know, secret research that suddenly like burst onto the scene, literally. And suddenly everybody's like really freaked out. Like, first of all, we didn't know that this bomb was being developed. And like, secondly, like, shouldn't we have had some kind of say in the creation of a technology that could literally destroy humanity? The role of the science popularizer as it sort of came to be justified in the post-war period was that we will help citizens understand science so that they can govern it. And so the question that we should be evaluating, using to evaluate someone like Carl Zimmer is not, is this interesting, but does this help citizens govern science? And I think, like, in this case, very much the answer is no. I mean, as I say, like, this sort of science writing is great if you, like, are going to, like, a dinner party with oncologists or something and are, like, worried that you're going to, like, run out of material at the dinner. <laughs> but, like, you know, this this sort of, like, factoid based science writing um, does not give us any conceptual tools to understand how we can govern science. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, that that is a really 
crucial distinction here. I mean, yeah, even thinking about some someone um, like Vannevar Bush, right, who was uh, uh, wrote this this very influential um, pamphlet called "Science: The Endless Frontier." Uh, you know, was the architect of the National Science Foundation. Um, a, a you know a big proponent of like the. The, the U.S. federal government must step in to fund basic research um, and, and to kind of take over as the, the, main, the primary funder of scientific work. And through that comes all of these kind of efforts around uh, public understanding of science, right? I mean, there's also just a very, like, quick and uh, dirty uh, history here of, like, all these different phases of different ways of understanding, you know, the public and science, right? So like, you know, going from public understanding of science, which is very much like the mode Zimmer is working in, it's kind of based on this like deficit model, right? That like people, the public is dumb, they're ignorant, their heads are empty. And because of that, they do not understand science. And so what the role of the, the popularizer, um, which a lot of uh, social scientists and and scholars have kind of have have made nice careers for themselves doing these kinds of things as well, which is to break down the operations of biology and chemistry and physics and so on into little nuggets that uh, the public can understand. And then the 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 idea is that by understanding it, then they will trust in it, they will believe in it, they will have warm, fuzzy feelings about it. Um, and importantly, they will get out of the way. They, they, they yeah, won't stand exactly. in the way of the progress and forward march of science. The acronym here, I, quite aptly, is PUS or PUS, right? <laughs> and, and then, you know, that kind of goes up towards this uh, later phase of like, public engagement with science and technology, right? Which has an acronym of PEST. Uh, and the idea is that like, uh, it's not enough for people to understand it. Instead, you have to do like focus groups to get them to uh, engage with the science. And like a good focus group um, provides some feedback, which can then be used ultimately to um, sell that, that, that science and technology back to the public better. I think that like I'm happy to have the the chance actually to talk about um to talk about Vannevar Bush and kind of because I think that um Vannevar Bush would have very much agreed in some ways um with uh Carl Zimmer's approach, right? So so Vannevar Bush writes Science in the Endless Frontier because you have this enormous bolus of federal funding for science that he doesn't want to go away after um the end of World War II. But there's an enormous fight in the creation and establishment of federal funding for science because you have basically these, um, you know, impresarios of an older model of science, the Rockefeller mo model of science, which was, well, we have experts, um, they're scientific experts, and there is a fundamental truth to science that stands outside of politics. And we need to just let the scientists do their own thing so they can explore the wonders of nature um, without any public input or control. And so there was an enormous fight in the creation of the National Science Foundation because you had a senator named Harry Kilgore um, who introduced a bill that would have put the NSF under the control of the executive and of Congress. And, it, and by the way, this involved things like the um, 
intellectual property from science would be owned by the public. That's they lost. But there's there's an intimate connection between this idea of like scientific neutrality and there's no politics to science um, that marks kind of this sort of elitist control of science and the way that Zimmer writes about science. Uh, what none of these these different models and and phases of how to understand the public over here and science over here really approach, which is what you you started off by saying, you know, was kind of fundamentally the 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 main political impetus behind a lot of this is that idea of a of a democratic governance over science, right? It's uh, it's it's always kind of. On one hand, you know, uh, uh, it moves from placing science as an institution in a role of a, in a position of power and authority over the public. And then something like, you know, the movement towards public engagement tries to level that playing field, right? Well, actually, these are two different uh, institutions, the public and science, that ought to uh, be engaging in a, a very civil and cool-headed conversation with each other. It's a discussion. Um, but never does it go that other, th- that, that next step of saying, actually, something like science is an institution that the public ought to have, ought to have power over, ought to have governance over, ought to be able to hold to account to provide direct oversight um, on science. In much the same way as we talk about with like, you know, democratic governance of technology, like making that next step is for most people like so radical as to be unthinkable, right? That that the public should have uh, uh, authority over this institution. And no, no, no. At best, let's make them equal, uh, equal members of this thing we call society. Right. And I think that like the problem, I mean, not to, not to beat this horse too much, but the problem with the, the Zimmer mode is that, well, they just don't know enough about science. Um, and if only they understood like, you know, how to, how to use a microscope, right. Then, then maybe we could let them into the discussion. And I think that like what, when you think about what sort of facts the public needs to govern science, and this almost sounds heretical to say, but you don't actually really need to know the ins and outs of like how a virus works. Now that's interesting, right? But you don't actually need to know exactly what's happening on the lab bench. What you do need to know are uh, like who's funding this, who's paying for it, who's getting the intellectual property rights, uh, how how does how does that IP like figure in like like when we're talking about educating the public about, for instance, the COVID vaccine. Sure, it's important to convince people that it works and it does work. But like, what should what we should equally be, you know, uh, educating people about is the fact that like, there's no necessary reason that the profit making structure is like this, right? It could be another way, and so 
My argument is that the sort of facts that we consider relevant when we're educating the public about science, framing those as just telling people what happens in the lab bench rather than the multitude of factors that go up into constituting the very, like, structure of science. Those those sorts of facts are just as important as telling people, like, you know, how an ion channel works or, like, you know, what the mitochondria is. When uh, when you present something like this, like when you when you present to maybe a science popularizer, an audience that has been used to science popularized material, this idea that there is much more that's going on that is constructing the reality of how you get the vaccine or why the vaccine is distributed this way or that way. How do the science popularizers like Zimmer or, or you know the the waves of them that came before him usually deal with this? Do they reject it outright as like oh you're not you're like you're missing the point of of writing about science? Is it contested? Is it ignored? Generally speaking, or is there like any sort of is it dismissed, you know, or argued with? I think that there's just a prevalent sense that if you open that can of worms or what they see as that can of worms, then you're going to politicize science and then it's going to become some sort of partisan battle, which doesn't recognize, right, that it's already a partisan battle. Like people already understand that there are like a myriad of, of political factors in play here and refusing to talk about it and refusing to acknowledge that actually deepens mistrust of science, right? Like everyone understands when um, when the federal government says like you have to get the vaccine because we're literally not going to do it because nothing else works. Well, everyone knows that actually if they paid people to stay home at the beginning of the pandemic, that would have worked. And that was something that they chose not to do. So there's kind of this like ransom note quality to, to the, to the idea that like, well, you have to get the vaccine or, or, or else. Um, when everyone knows that there that that the construction of the pandemic such that the vaccine is now the only thing that would work um, was like the outcome of like a variety of like political choices, right? And so I think you know to answer your question, there is a fear of opening up the can of worms of the politics of science because they don't actually have the conceptual tools to understand that like everyone already knows that that can of worms is like not just open but like rampant right 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 i had a interaction with one of the neighbors of my mom when i was visiting over the summer he came and just basically just started talking to us about how fauci was making billions of dollars off of the vaccine and it's just like this like started talking about this like weird cultish behavior like people you know the adoration and like rock star treatment of fauci uh do you feel like that 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 kind of falls into that too like people like looking at someone like that and kind of giving them like this, like status is just another version of a fun science guy. Who's also making science political. Now, before you answer that, Danielle, I will say that uh, we on TMK are Fauci sexuals. uh, And so keep that in mind. (laughs) I was in Marin County uh, a couple months ago and saw like at one of these, like, you know, like fancy little gift stores, this pair of socks that you would like, you know, buy for your grandma or whatever, like your wealthy grandparents that had like, that had Fauci on them that said Fauci sexual. Oh no. And it was just like, <laughs> oh, we're living no. in a godless society. <laughs> oh, the bit is alive. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah. I mean, to your point, absolutely. I think that the sort of Zimmer-esque fear of, 
including politics in, in the account that they give of science, fundamentally misunderstands the situation, which is not... The situation is not if you introduce politics, people will distrust you. The situation is that if you don't introduce politics, um, a lot of the public will distrust you, and like for very good reason. Mm. Yeah, uh, this this idea of opening up a can of worms, I think, is also a, another one of these hedging moments, right? Where it's like by opening up a a a political critique of science, a you know, a politicization of science, uh, then like. I think for a lot of people, that means you become Trump, right? Like, like that, that's the only option, right? Is that if you open up this can of worms and you open up science to a political analysis, let alone a political critique, um, then, then the only option here is that you become Trump, that the only analysis available is um, the, the kind of, you know, extreme right wing, like anti-Fauci conspiracy, uh, the, the kind of uh, Trumpist uh, uh, approach to this. And, you know, there's something true there only in the sense of in terms of our like mainstream discourse, that is the only option available. That doesn't mean that it, it is the only option available in like an analytical sense. And it absolutely doesn't mean normatively that it's the best option or the only option that we have, right? Like I think what, what you're doing here, what we're doing here and what needs to be done more. And you talk about this with like, you know, even among not just like the centrists who have like, you know, the yard signs that are like, in this house, we believe in science, right? Or like, you know, they they like sh like and share memes from my fucking love science uh, Facebook page or whatever, right? But it's like, even among leftists, I think leftists are very hesitant to uh, touch the third rail of science um, and, and uh, at risk of being labeled science denialist and all of the things that come along with that being COVID denialist, climate change denialist, right? Like all of the kind of, again, this, this, this can of worms and all the baggage that comes along with that. That's what what I think your piece is, is, is doing and what we're trying to do here is instead pave that different, that leftist uh, option, that leftist pathway of science ought to be open to a leftist critique and a leftist analysis, one that is fundamentally about understanding uh, it in terms of, of power and authority um, and understanding it in terms of ideology. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking here in particular and, and another person who I was catching a lot of really positive vibes from your piece um, about, and I, I've, I've talked to you about this, is uh, um, the philosopher of science, Paul Feyerbin, uh, who, you know, is, a, is a, a real deep cut for many people. But, you know, Paul Feyerbin is a really interesting um, person and an interesting philosopher who had a very strong critique of the scientific method and of science as uh, as a, a, a kind of movement, uh, an ideology in society. Uh, Feyerbin is a proponent of this theory he he coined and, and worked out in his in his scholarship called epistemological anarchism. Um, well, I think we can think of epistemological anarchism as the kind of a uh, 
what what Luddism is to technology, epistemological anarchism is to science. You know, Feyerbin's argument, which is very deeply uh, based in in a historical and philosophical understanding of science, um, and the, is that the 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 purported scientific method um, does not have or or and should not have a monopoly on truth on what counts as truth um, and and the useful results from that right and this kind of gets uh, this this very much goes towards what you were talking about the at the top of the show around like how does science actually work right it's not it doesn't work according to these like uh, dogmatic text that were that were taught to in like eighth grade science class of like some you know uh, uh, scientific method passed down to us by Francis Bacon um, and that has remained static throughout all of history for hundreds of years. Um, so I, saw, uh, I saw a meme on Twitter that was like, the scientific method can be summed up as fuck around and find out. That That is like a lot of what science actually is really like science as a practice really does involve a lot of like, usually, as you said, like 22 year old grad students or, or like, uh, honors undergrad students, like fucking around in a lab with some supervision and then like finding out <laughs> what happens. Right. And like, and that becomes science, right. It becomes packaged up, um, in journal articles in books like Zimmer's, uh, as science. And there's a, a nice kind of like, uh, narrative overlaid on top of it of how that truth was discovered, um, and how those conclusions were reached. But uh, Feyerbin writes in, 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 his, in his book, Against Method, uh, he, he lays out, you know, in his view, how science started as this kind of liberating movement, um, but then over time became this like increasingly dogmatic and rigid movement that uh, has increasingly become an ideology. Uh, and and he, he talks about how like, you know, despite its successes, um, science had started to attain some of these oppressive features. Uh, and it was not possible to come up with, you know, in Feyerabend's view, any kind of like really unambiguous way to distinguish it from religion or magic or mythology. Like this is his epistemological anarchism is to say that like science is on the same playing field as religion, magic, and mythology. And most people's understanding of science, not because they're stupid, but because science has created, science as an institution has created a lot of gatekeeping um, and, and messengers like Zimmer who perpetuate this kind of, uh, of relationship to science as magic, mythology, religion. Um, and, and he felt that, you know, Feyerabend argues that this like exclusive dominance of science and this very social exclusionary method of science uh, means that it, it has become uh, increasingly a, an authoritarian and ungrounded way of directing society. I mean, of course, like, you know, Feyerabend's arguments here you know, name got him named as, you know, as, as one person called him, quote, the worst enemy of science, right? Or science's public enemy number one. Because, <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't go around saying this stuff about science without uh, the Inquisition coming to get you, right? <laughs> but I want to give a quote from um, a really well-known and very good essay that Feyerabend wrote, uh, I think in the 80s, called How to Defend Society Against Science. Um, and, and in this, right, he says that 
According to one common argument, often treated as an assumption, science deserves a special position in society because it has produced results. This is an argument only if it can be taken for granted that nothing else has ever produced results. However, the lesson is plain. There does not exist a single argument that could be used to support the exceptional role which science today plays in society. Science has done many things, but so have other ideologies. Science often proceeds systematically, but so do other ideologies. Just consult the records of the many doctrinal uh, debates that took place in the church. And besides, there are no overriding rules which are adhered to under any circumstances. There is no scientific methodology that can be used to separate science from the rest. Science is just one of the many ideologies that propel society, and it should be treated as such. This statement applies even to the most progressive and most dialectical sections of science. And I, I like this, right? The idea of a epistemological anarchism could actually be more understood as like a methodological symmetry, right? Which is this idea that a lot, there are a lot of methods and a lot of institutions and a lot of ideologies that propel society in various ways and hold dominance over society in various ways and wield positions of authority over society in various ways. What is it about science that makes it so special, that makes it so untouchable, that makes it so immune to critique or analysis or any kind of antagonism uh, and, and, and I mean, for Fairbin, his, his conclusion is nothing. There is nothing about science that, that provides it that special position. You know, I, I don't know if you go, if you go that far. I mean, Fairbin, you know, if, if you can say one thing about Fairbin, he's a, he's a really fun read because he's always willing to push his argument to the most extreme, like logical conclusions, right? He's like, all right, I'm an anarchist. I'm a leftist, uh, and so I'm going to apply that uh, in its full to the to what I see as the dominant ideology and institution in society, science, right? But yeah, I, I don't know if you go that far, Danielle. But I just I, I wonder what like what are your thoughts there? that we're in, and I, you know, I'm sorry to repeat myself here, but maybe to repeat myself and like unpack it a little bit more. I think we're in a moment on the left where it seems like the science is on our side on a lot of things um, that we want to get done. And I think that it's a mistake to employ science in this way where our politics are derived from science. Um, I think that Sure, obviously, we should lean into messaging around climate change and so on that says, like, look, this is, you know, you can, like, look at the IPCC reports and whatever, and, like, yeah, indeed, climate change is actually happening. But Philip Murawski, who's a wonderful historian of science, has made the very good point that, you know, the science... First of all, it's like, what what is this thing called science? Because, like, there are multiple scientific ways that climate change could be ameliorated that do not involve um, redistribution of wealth, right? Um, there's carbon capture, right? And like, like capital is like hard at work at finding profit, uh, profit generating ways to uh, ameliorate climate change. And so I think the distinction that I want to make is our politics cannot be derived from science. We can use science, but they cannot be derived from science because 
for a variety of reasons, but like, but like our ultimate goals are things like the redistribution of wealth and the creation of a classless society, right? So with that in mind, you know, I think that we can look at science and say that the very construction of science like has class interest in it for historically contingent reasons. So for instance, if you look at the, um, the creation of the university system and the academic system in the United States, there were a system of uh, exclusions that resulted in the scientific establishment being overwhelmingly upper middle class and white. And, you know, that's like changing now, but like I, you know, without going too much into like the question of like, God forbid the PMC or professional managerial class, like the answer (laughs) is not just like, oh, we get like more white women in science and then we're going to solve the problem. Right. And so there, there is a class question in the construction of science, and there are multiple sciences within science, right? And, and so I think that where I come down on, on the sort of question of like how leftists should be using science, we should use it when it works for us. But there are also ways of doing our politics that don't rely on science, right? Like you don't actually need to like know how the, I'm sorry, I keep saying this, but you don't need to know how the mitochondria works necessarily to like enact uh, systemic societal change. And, you know, I think that why people like Zimmer don't want to acknowledge the problems of like, you know, the class, the class orientation of science is that it points toward questions that they just don't have the conceptual tools to begin to figure out. Like, that opens up questions about um, like how institutions in this society are constructed, like how access to education works, um, like how intellectual property regimes work. And they don't want to touch those questions because they quite frankly just like can't envision the systemic change that would be necessary to begin addressing them. I really like that point of like our politics cannot be derived from science, right? And it, it goes back to that idea of like what holds the superposition over what, right? And it's like uh, our politics should hold the position over science, right? Not the other way around. Just as like to treating everything as you know downstream from culture is also a very uh, a, a very bad way to derive your politics, right? You know, for for anybody listening who is you know. Uh, sympathetic to what we talk about so much on TMK, um, you know, around technology, I think you could very easily and very readily just uh, copy and paste technology into everything that Danielle has just said about science. And if that makes sense to you, then what, again, it goes back to Farabin's point, what makes science so special, right? Where it's untouchable. We now, if, if we are coming around to the to the point that technology is not an untouchable capital T thing, then what makes science a capital S thing that is untouchable? Um, and, and again, I think it comes back to all of these things around uh, both, both the political economy of that of science, as you've re- really laid out well, um, you know, does Facebook or Google or Amazon or Apple employing a lot of scientists, uh, does that make their science because they're doing science, is it somehow outside of their interest? I mean, I think we would obviously say no, right? Yeah, but what uh, about when they hire a bunch of ethicists? That makes their products more ethical. Right, <laughs> exactly, no. exactly. And those are scientists. 
So, uh, and I mean, that's exactly right there as well, right? Like, does that make them more ethical? Does that, is ethics something that exists outside of the interest as well? It's like the obvious answer is no to all of this, right? And so I think wrapping us up here, the the reason your essay, I mean, I, the, well, one reason I liked your essay so much is because it's so so well written, Danielle. <laughs> it is it is a very fun piece to read uh, because you are so adept at putting at, at, at structuring the argument. Um, but I think it does also really do a lot of work in opening up something like science um, as an institution uh, uh, and the ideologues of it, like Zimmer, um, as people that deserve to be um, seen with a critical eye. Uh, and, and, and much the other way that at least we as leftists are so attuned to casting that, that critique of, of authority and those uh, theories of power and understandings of relationship, all of this stuff to other things, uh, science deserves to, to be done the same. And then at, at the end of the day, you apply those, that critical analysis um, in a very serious way and you conclude Actually, okay, no, science is good, and and science is all really great, and uh, everything that it does is actually true and useful. Um, then, okay, at least you've done that. But up, but up until now, we haven't done that, right? We haven't applied that analysis to science in the same way that we have to other institutions in society, and I think that's obviously a problem, um, and a, and, a, and a big problem. problem. With that, uh, I do want to thank you so much, Danielle, for for coming on TMK again and and opening up conversations um, that we haven't had and that we should be having. Thanks, that's always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Where can people find you, Danielle? Do your do your plugs, uh, and I also know you're on the job market right now. So I am on the job market. Any of these academics who are listening to TMK. Danielle is not one you want to sleep on. And I do know who Schaefer is, I promise. (laughs) 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 I'm just getting more. Every time I open my mouth in public, I just get more unemployable. But yeah, hire me. As As I told Jason, the list of things I won't do for money, shorter than you'd think. Uh, where can people find your work and your writing and all of that, Danielle? Where can people look you up? The best place to keep in touch probably would be Twitter, which I'm at underscore Danielle underscore Carr. Okay, we will put that in. We will, we will put that link in the episode description for sure. Um, thank you again, and always looking forward to having you on for our our, our TMK science correspondent, Danielle Carr. Danielle, Danielle, Danielle. And I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, And you can subscribe for more TMK uh, every week at patreon.com slash thismachinekills. We have started a really awesome new book series on Wendy H.K. Chan's uh, foundational work, Control and Freedom, Power and Paranoia in the Age of Fiber Optics. Um, So you definitely don't want to miss out on that. You can check out, we unlocked the first episode of that book club series um, last week, uh, and that'll, that'll be going on, as well as premium episodes on all kinds of things, uh, 
large back catalog and more to come. So subscribe at Patreon for that. Um, And until then, thank you again, Danielle. Later. Adios.